And so that I think that is like a critical point in the maturity or maturing of a designer to be able to sit down and go, I heard you say these three things. It led me to make these decisions with this design, whether it's a brochure or a website or an app, but here's the concept. Okay. So everything I'm going to show you from now on, that's the lens or the filter that I'm going to apply to the work. Otherwise you're making the, your customer, your client do your work for you. And that's not a good feeling. And then they're not going to value you. Then they're going to get frustrated. Then they're going to be like, I can get this cheaper on Fiverr. Like, what is this? Hey, hey, and welcome to the studio podcast. Another episode of a show which aims to help level up ambitious creatives. That's you uh, and help you learn more about creative thinking and strategic design. My name is Ilya Lobanov and I'm a strategic designer and uh, also founder of Studio, which is a brand agency focused on growing and elevating brands and businesses. Another passion of mine is passing on those tools and techniques and and, uh, mindsets that I've picked up over the years with you uh, so that you can apply it in your own professional and personal career. And uh, this is pretty much the reason why I've started this podcast as well, because I actually invite other prominent creative industry leaders who can share their golden uh, nuggets of wisdom as well. So in today's episode, my guest is Mark Pollard, who is a, a prominent brand strategist, or some might also call him a planner. And uh, he's a host of a very popular podcast that has probably well over 700,000 listens now uh, called Sweathead. He's also the author of a book titled Strategy is Your Words. So I have uh, come across a few of his chats on Clubhouse where he was uh, also um, a speaker in uh, a few different rooms that I was present in on Clubhouse and uh, his thoughts on generating ideas and um, brand strategy uh, really resonated with me. So I knew I had to invite him to uh, as a guest on this uh, podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation and here's the episode right now. How are you? I'm well, how are you? Uh, I'm a bit, it's, it's been a pretty weird week, to be honest with you. It's, it's been one of those weeks. He hasn't really gone to plan. Yeah. yeah what do you mean? Just, what do you mean? What's not gone to plan? What's well, pro- I haven't. What's the problem? The productivity was uh, completely at the, just at the bottom, basically. It was not, um, it was the weather was strange and then we were trying to organize our travel plans and then we, um, were told that we need to uh, get more paperwork done than what we had previously and so we had to we're trying to chase okay, anyway okay. i think i think we're good but now i'm looking out the window it's like a, a snowstorm happening at the moment so we're flying out tomorrow hopefully it's um you know a little bit better tomorrow <laughs> hopefully with it's flight flight time otherwise we're screwed <laughs> it's all for nothing <laughs> where you get let's get into this but where are you where are you going uh, we are planning to go for my wife's birthday to Istanbul. It's only a oh, short um, two and a half hours from a flight from where we are. So we're kind of uh, close to the Black Sea ourselves. We're just on the other side. So yeah, um, yeah it would be a pretty amazing. short flight. Yeah, Amazing. I've heard, I've heard Istanbul is amazing, obviously, for so many reasons, but I've not been. And it's funny because growing up in Australia, in especially like the 80s and 90s, we sort of had a particular access to the world, largely through the UK, Western Europe, depending on where you're from, and, and then through Southeast Asia, you know, eventually China, et cetera. But there are just parts of the world that were more, they seem more exotic, 
you know, less safe, more foreign, uh, and now living in the Northern Hemisphere, it's like, oh my God, there's cities all over the place. And I, I get anxious about not visiting everywhere and knowing everyone. Cause I'm like, there's so much humanity to know and to hug and to understand. And uh, yeah, so now I'm anxious about, I've got to go to Istanbul somehow. Um, and Ru I've never been to Russia. I'm like, hey, have you ever, have you ever looked at a map? Yes. Yeah. So Ru Russia's really big. Did you know that? It's pretty, it's pretty big. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Uh, and yet on many maps, Russia doesn't look as big as it is, but I look at it, I'm like, oh my God. And then Mongolia's there. And I was watching a video recently about how Mongolia asked Russia to annex, annex it a few years ago or a while ago. Um, anyway, so much world to know, but let's get into the topic, Ilya. Yes, let's, let's uh, get into the topic. Enough, uh, the enough topic play. <laughs> the, the topic today is something I think that's very um, critical for, for us creatives to, to realize and to know, and even you know, anyone that works in the creative field, whether that's uh, just you know, designing logos or uh, websites, I think we all need to, to be aware of this issue of defining the actual problem and uh, defining the brief, defining the challenge. And I think I know that I've struggled with this myself personally, and I think it was maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or something when I read Edward de Bonus' couple of books, um, like the thinking, six thinking hats and uh, the, the lateral thinking. And I think one of the first things I read in there was defining the problem is one of the key components because otherwise you're kind of just, you know, probably solving problem that doesn't need solving or, um, you're, you're not understanding the actual challenge correctly. So, so that's the topic at hand, but before we kind of dive in into it and, and kind of the, get into all the details, uh, I'd love to hear uh, a, qu a quick introduction about your journey. Uh, I know that you've had a pretty, um, you know, interesting career as to where you've started. And um, I've read that you were working, I think, with, with Todd Sampson um, at, at one point. Do you know him? And, well, I don't know him, but I okay. know him as a, as a TV personality. He is um, a TV personality. Some, someone who runs um, Gruen Factor or, um, or Transfer, Gruen, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, for those of you uh, audiences, members who maybe haven't heard of that, it's kind of like a TV show where I guess they, they, what do they do? They kind of uh, talk about the different advertising commercials and they kind of break down wh what works and what hasn't worked. And I think they also do like challenges of um, how would you do this? And, and, and I think there's like a, basically a few different people on the panel uh, from the advertising and branding industries that try to solve it. But anyway, we're, we're getting off topic. So I would love to get your uh, kind of snapshot of your career as to where you've started and what, what do you do so people can get a bit of context? Yeah, I'll do it super quick. So I've been in and around agencies since I was 19. Uh, got into it. I was making websites at the time about rap, underground rap, uh, and was doing a radio show a little bit after that, actually. And would sometimes stay back in the agencies because I didn't have a computer or a very good one. And I taught myself how to make magazines and websites. And uh, around 1920 was in the agency world, but also publishing a hip hop magazine and doing the main hip hop radio show in, in Sydney at the time, which I'd inherited from someone that had been around for a long time. And so pretty much anyone in the, the hip hop world who came through Australia came, came on this radio show. So at a very young age, I interviewed, I was 19 when I interviewed, I think 19, when I interviewed Flavor Flav, interviewed like De La Soul, all kinds of people. Um, and was really attracted to the ability to express without having to go through gatekeepers. Uh, 
that's what really excited me about the internet first and foremost. And second was being a bit introverted, being able to find a community online and in a way where I, you know, there weren't that many people into the things that I was into growing up, but I found them online. Uh, so did about 10 years of UX and IA information architecture, user experience, digital production while also doing a magazine and putting on music events. And then when I was around 28, that's when I was, I decided to freelance as a digital producer. And that's when I was offered a job, my first full-time strategy job at Leo Burnett in Sydney by this guy, Todd Sampson, who's I think made three or four TV shows now. And uh, have been trying to sort of bring together the worlds of, of, I don't use the word content too much, but basically content, the internet and brand strategy in practical ways ever since. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think the, there is a very unique approach that you take to strategy. Uh, I think it was maybe a year ago when I've taken your Skillshare course and I thought, hmm, this is um, like a unique approach. You know, you typically see the, the, you know, the, the brand values and, and uh, the, the why statement kind of exercises and this kind of stuff to, to get to, a you know, like the core of the problem or um, of the brief. But I think you seem to also focus a little bit more on that human side. Like there's, there is that element of um, you learn about yourself as you go through these exercises, not just as a purely business tool, I suppose. Um, Potential. So with the, um, topic at hand here that we're discussing about getting to the core of the problem. Uh, I know many designers are probably familiar with that sort of um, uh, approach where you're kind of trying to ask why are you doing this? Why, you, why do you think this kind of um, uh, deliverable that you're requesting from me will solve your problem? And then they kind of try to get to this core of the problem, like maybe they use the five whys or, or something mm -hmm. similar. Um, why do you think that's crucial to, to be able to talk to customers about that, to be able to get to that core problem? Why do you think we need to do that? Why can't we just go and, you know, let's just design a logo if, if we're asked to design a logo. Like, why do we need to, to dig deeper with these kind of questions? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that when we talk about problems, there are different categories of problem. And so when I use it in a particular context, I'll be like, here's how I'm using the word, here's how I define it, and then here are the techniques that I would often use to, to do it. The main reason that you want to solve a problem uh, is that otherwise you're just solving a symptom. So the main reason to solve a problem is so that you don't just solve a symptom that might repeat itself. It might happen again, right? So if you get sick a lot, if you get the sniffles a lot or you're coughing a lot, you can take medicine for that. Or you can ask what's going on. Are you sleeping enough? Are you eating well enough? Are you exercising? Are you stressed? Have you processed things from when you were younger? What's actually going on? Because in solving that, you won't need to spend the money in this situation, but spend the money on the medicine, which is just solving a symptom, but not solving the root cause. So that's the, that's the first and most important answer to that question. So it's, it's about um, then not actually realizing that well, I mean, the, the client itself, sometimes when they come to you, I guess sometimes they're not aware of or that they are just requesting for the symptom to be treated. Is that, is that would you say that's true in some cases? It can be true, but I think, and they, uh, you also probably need to separate design briefs from advertising briefs. Mm -hmm. But often a, often a client's coming to you wanting some kind of output, right? And so it might not even be a symptom that they're trying to solve. They just want, in an advertising sense, they might want more awareness or in a design sense, they want a new logo. 
you know, there's something that's output or outcome oriented, but the question is, well, if you need more awareness, that's what all advertising does, first of all. So it's not that interesting a place to start, but why do you need awareness or, or what do you need awareness of? And why do you need awareness of that right now and with whom? And so there's a set of questions that can get you into a more interesting place to start. Uh, but then also there are other reasons for, for wanting problems. First of all, problems help you sell. So top salespeople, they lead discussions by talking about problems as opposed to pricing an output or an outcome. And that's people selling factories or planes, let alone our kinds of services. Yes. The second is that problems captivate brains. You know, humans have a negativity bias. We are wired for problems because if we can see a problem and try to solve it, it's going to keep us alive. It helps us survive. So there's sort of two additional reasons as, as to why problems matter. Um, the third one, which is probably something that Edward de Bono would have touched on, many other people have, is that in, a, in an interestingly stated problem, there's often a solution. Okay. So you could find, depending on how you're using the word and the work you do, that a well-stated problem in a sentence, you might just switch a word or two and you've got what I would call a strategy or a, a way to solve it just from mm -hmm. really identifying what the problem is. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I think even on a practical level, if we're trying to solve problems for ourselves, I was doing a session recently and someone wanted to talk about depression and they were like, could we try to do strategy on my depression? And obviously we go into, well, why do you feel it? What is it like to feel it the way that you feel it? And, you know, through 10 to 15 answers, the solution becomes pretty apparent in that, and it's a general solution in that a lot of people who have a mild form of depression, I'm not talking really complex and because uh, mental health is a very personal thing, but a lot of people who just feel a little listless and melancholic, but for a long time and lack energy, they know that the opposite of that to be simplistic is that they need to take action. And to take action means you need some kind of goal to take a goal. You, you might need to think about who you're helping, but within 15 questions or so, just from talking about the problem, the answer, can start to appear yeah redefining it's really crucial and even just like you say just rephrasing the the it in the form of a question or you know different types of questions i find that how might we technique that can be one way to try and rephrase and or find different ways to, to say what the problem is uh, but also the even like you say, the language can matter, you know, even if you substitute a few different words that can kind of give you like a trigger, you know, of some kind that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Totally. I love, um, like, for example, the uh, quote that's attributed usually to um, Albert Einstein. I don't know if he said it or not, but if, if I was given an hour for a problem, mm -hmm. then uh, I would spend um, 55 minutes thinking about the challenge and five minutes thinking about the solutions. And it's basically like, it tells you that you, like, it's kind of like you find the answer when you define the, the problem correctly, in yeah. the correct way. Yeah, and, uh, I, I agree do, with that. And it's, it feels esoteric until you do it a lot. And then, and then it becomes the main technique. And if it becomes your main technique, sometimes people can seem or feel overwhelmed because they want it to be more magical, more magic or more complicated. Mm. So there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on with, with what we're talking about. So how, um, 
could you guys give us an example perhaps of when a client approaches you and not a specific example but more um, in general terms of let's say they come to you for a particular output or particular deliverable and how do you approach that do you just literally ask them like try to dig deeper why do you think this is the you know the right solution uh, or do you have specific techniques maybe or tools that you uh, or exercises that you take them through to kind of get to that core problem yeah I'm, i look first of all a lot of people are not comfortable with the word problem so even that can Challenge. be a bit of yeah. well yeah I, like i use the word problem and I'll, I'll then again define it and i'm like it's like a mm -hmm. you know, game of chess or rubik's cube it's not like oh got this problem so you, you sometimes need to give context to that word because people can react to it like they're allergic to it and then I mean, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of interviews. Most companies that I work with, they don't suffer a lack of data or data or data. They don't suffer a lack of information. And sometimes people will have worked with multiple agencies for six to 12 months. And they're like, we just don't know what all of this is. We need something on a page that helps us understand what's going on. And in that particular situation, I'll end up doing, you know, maybe five to 10 internal interviews. Uh, if I'm helping develop a brand for the first time or reposition a brand, then I'll probably do 20 to 40 interviews with customers uh, as well as internal people. And, and it's through that that I start to try to understand what are the main obstacles in people's minds as to like why they're not buying this particular brand or product and why they are preferring or liking other products. And so that's really the starting point. But what I try to get through is this really circular marketing speak where someone's like, yeah, our problem is lack of awareness. And the other thing is sometimes I'll say it's basically lack of awareness, lack of consideration, lack of relevance, lack of saliency, lack of conversion. And it's just like, okay, everything. Okay, got it. Uh, what's up? You know, why don't you have, let's start with awareness. Okay, why, why is your awareness low? Oh, we haven't spent money on advertising. Okay, so you know what you need to do. Okay, <laughs> spend around advertising maybe, which uh, there's plenty of science about as well. So that kind of marketing speak, when the problem exists there, it's just not useful. You can't do anything with it. And so I try to get into like, what's the obstacle in people's minds as to why they're not buying the product. And it can take a few questions before we start to get real, real talk and language that I think we can, we can use. At the very least, what I'll try to do is say, okay, if we don't have much time, I wanna list 10 different problems, 10 obstacles in people's minds. But I'm not accepting things like they think our product is different. Different's a blank word. There's nothing in there for me to play with. They don't think our brand is relevant. Okay, relevant's not an interesting word for me. What do you mean? And I want, I want them to basically give me a phrase that might sound like criticism of the brand or that is loaded, right? And so, you know, I just came off a workshop just now, but we were there's one from last week where we were talking to people about potentially developing a campaign to raise money for an organization in San Francisco that helps women owned businesses. And the, the person who was in the workshop was like, you know, we're thinking about doing a campaign targeting men, which is, you know, I, I don't know if that's like a science or an evidence-based decision and strategies as a series of decisions, but that was what they said. And I was like, okay, let's play with that. And as we listed all the problems, someone said, because they thought that the men who might benefit or who might, sorry, might donate the most, they might identify as male feminists. The problem that came out is like, not actually a male feminist. That's way more interesting than saying, how do we solve awareness? 
because now we've got something to play with, some interesting language, the idea that they're saying that they're male feminists, but they're not. Okay, now we can play with that. Uh, the main challenge for designers is to, to me, the opportunity is to go beyond the visual problem. It's to go beyond, is to actually try to have uh, a business conversation. And for some people, depending on your client, it ends up being, don't use this word, these words, but it ends up being a bit of a spiritual conversation. Because if you are working with entrepreneurs or people building businesses where they are the business, that's a really important and different kind of conversation to the person who's got an MBA and it's just like, you know, they're just operating and they want to make money. It's really, it's really different. For visual designers, the opportunity is to not talk design. You know, it's to go into, well, what problem do you think you're trying to solve? I want to reach a new kind of customer. Okay, tell me about them why haven't they bought from you before or have you spoken to them why might they resist buying from you or why are they resisting buying from you that's where you start to get the rich conversation and you get to potentially have a uh, a bigger reason to be in their lives as a designer mm. you know then you might talk about visual design yeah i find the designers in general and i mean the creative creatives of any kind really already empathetic to, to a large degree so we can you know actually be curious enough and also actually care about the the, the answers that um, the clients are giving us and not just there for uh, like you say make things pretty or you know make uh, pretty visual pictures and and I believe that the majority of designs are in it because they they feel that way but I think a lot of uh, designers maybe struggle to express that or, or find the right answers or sorry the right questions to ask uh, within those meetings uh, to be able to to talk about those you know quote unquote emotional things or more spiritual conversations with the client and so I'm always trying to to give them the tools uh, how they can communicate and how they can ask the right questions but how can they even know the right questions to ask in those uh, scenarios so like you've already given us those couple of examples like what um, why would your customers buy from you you know what why do you care about this product so much and so that this is the kind of conversation that perhaps actually will give you even ideas for visual designs because that's um, like I was you know, in the early days when I was making my first, you know, crappy logos, I was basing a lot of my design decisions on um, like this kind of questions, but also trying to work out what sort of personality would the brand have, you know, so I would ask like things like, well, if your brand was a cartoon character or yeah. you know or a movie character what would it be how would it act how would you you want your customers to perceive you you know how would what would be the the kind of the, the character traits there and that will give me ideas you know from a visual perspective of what i can package up into this symbol or you know this yep. logo type and so but you know that was kind of a service level you can say questions if you like but if you yeah. dig deeper you can get to even more um, hard truths. I think if you, you're trying to get to you're trying to get to that deeper point of view and to Bertie's point about visual solutions or visual images, maybe maybe one thing a designer could do is as they're because I've worked with a lot of designers who are good at words, but a lot of them prefer not to use a lot of words. You know, like a designer that really wants to use a lot of words and interview and ask. I think it's relatively rare. But what, what a designer could do, it'd be really interesting to see this, is as they interview their clients or as they interview people, is to, visual, like to find a photo or an image that represents the problem that you're going to solve for that person. So, for example, let's say you work with 
someone, let's say you work with small businesses and they feel like, and this person who runs a small business, they feel like there's pent up energy, but they feel stuck in their head. What is an image that could bring that to life so that you can at least start to have a problem oriented conversation through an image, right? Because you could totally do it. You could, you could totally make recommendations to a client without using a slide that without using slides that have many words in them, it could just be visual. Um, but you can use your visual thinking to help navigate the conversation um, and to help provide feedback or thoughts as you're going. And basically you have a visual, like use photos to do your strategy for you. That would be a very interesting thing to do for sure. Mm. I wonder how um, AI, the development of, of AI can somehow connect into this as well, because I can almost imagine, you know, the designer is thinking what the right image would be, uh, like this, the most suitable image to communicate that point of view or that slide. And then he just thinks that and then Google pulls up, you know, suitable images <laughs> and you can just drag it into the, into the slide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know a, a great, um, I, I don't know what he's, he calls himself. He has a specific kind of title that how he refers to himself. Um, his name is Jimmy Dross stuff. His, that's his handle on Instagram. And basically what it does is he'll uh, be in a meeting with a client or sometimes he'll be at the conference or something. And then as a speaker uh, is presenting the keynote, he will actually be there um, illustrating the, the main topics of the conversation and then kind of package that. And then that would become like the, the, the cover art or the, you know, the artwork for, for that particular presentation for that keynote. And he, so he basically like, does what you've just described. He kind of ca encapsulates the different critical points into those illustrations. And then those, um, it's like almost like a little storyline, you know, like a little, um, comic book, if you like. Yep. So yeah. So I do believe that we, we can communicate more in, in imagery, but I think we also need to work on, on those other skills to try and present our words. And I think, a lot of designers do even write copy, you know, they can start to write copy. And I think that can benefit them as well. Like as opposed to using, you know, lorem ipsum in their uh, designs all the time, they can actually use some relevant copy. And then that actually also can help them um, communicate the message better. Because, you know, if you have the right imagery and, you know, design and the right words, the client can visualize it, you know, really see what it's going to look like. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of the big problem with designers, they, they kind of show their designs and it might look great, but then it's out of context. You know, and then the client is trying to visualize, you know, the, the, the right words, but they, they struggle, you know, and then, and then we have that miscommunication or that. Um... Yeah. Like, I think it's important. I don't know how everybody works, but because I've worked in digital agencies with web designers and in advertising agencies with art directors where there was a design studio, but also I've hired designers for my own stuff. I, I want to know what they're thinking. I don't want to look at a design. I want you to sit down with me and go, here's what I heard from you. It led to these, I want to know your decisions. It led to these five decisions. And here's the concept. Because if I don't know what you've heard from me, if I don't know what decisions you've made, and if I don't know the concept that you're working with, and I'm going to use the word concept in a very broad way, the broadest way possible. If I don't know those things, how can I give you feedback? How do I know what I'm looking at? You know, it's, it's a bunch of laid out stuff. I don't know. Is it, what's it trying to do here? What's your thinking? And so that, I think that is like the, the critical point in the maturity or maturing of a designer. 
to be able to sit down and go, I heard you say these three things. It led me to make these decisions with this design, whether it's a brochure or a website or an app, but here's the concept. Okay, so everything I'm going to show you from now on, that's the lens or the filter mm -hmm. that I'm going to apply to the work. Otherwise, you're making the, your customer, your client, do your work for you. And that's not a good feeling. And then they're not going to value you. Then they're going to get frustrated. Then they're going to be like, I can get this cheaper on Fiverr. Like, what is this? You know, but it's, and not everyone's the same. You know, there are definitely people in business who hire design people who are not empathetic or creative people. They, mm -hmm. they, they're just going to pay 99 cents. That's it. But there are also people who want to be seen. And increasingly, especially in the US, but increasingly as we are in, on social media, as, as public presences or public brands, you want to find people who get you as a human. Because if they get you as a human as much as possible, then you can trust their design, design decisions because you know that they're thinking about what they're doing as opposed to, yeah, I just laid it out, thought it was cool. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly what um, my, my uh, course uh, that I just launched recently about is about presenting a work where I talk about where designers, they basically try to, uh, you know, wow the client. It's, it's almost um, self-centered, you know, if you like that kind of showing the work and saying, look at my work and it should be amazing. And, and it is amazing. You should think that it's amazing. But you, like you said, they don't uh, provide any context. They don't provide the story, the backstory, the, what led to those design decisions. What's the concept that's driving like that lens that, that, uh, you know, all of the design decisions are based through. And, and then they are surprised, like when the client doesn't know what to say, they, they don't, they don't know how, how to provide feedback, yeah. you know, and, and I've had that plenty of times in, in my career at the, at the early stages too, when they've kind of go, okay, what would you like us to tell you? <laughs> and you, then you, yeah, for, you're basically it's... saying, Oh, well, don't you think that this design is good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't you like don't you like me? Don't you trust me? I'm an artist. Yeah, it's hard. Um, there are a couple of questions here. One's about PR and what we're talking about, and the answer is yes. There's a good book worth reading by Edward Bernays called uh, "Crystallizing Public Opinion." You can also watch a documentary on YouTube by Adam Curtis called "The Century of Self," where they talk about PR. And the thing is that he wrote and was around a very long time ago. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And apparently talked about that a lot, but the way he talks about public relations, I get, um, and he lamented 70 years ago or something, the PR person who just issues press releases as opposed to actually tries to create the news. So he's worth looking into. There's just a different style of strategy slash insight in PR, which is to me, PR as a field is a bit more literal journalist because it's, connected to journalism, hopefully, or they think it is, and a bit more interested in, in statistics. So that's the kind of a quick answer to PR, the PR question. And then there's a question here. Can we answer this, this other question here about tips on teasing out? Um, so the two, so Jess, the documentary is called Century of Self by Adam Curtis. He has a ton of stuff on YouTube now. Spoil yourself. He basically makes I was thinking about this recently. He makes horror movies about reality, uh, but he does it very well. And then, and that documentary touches on a person called Edward Bernays, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. He wrote a book a long time ago called uh, Crystallizing Public Opinion. So I think those two things, the book and then Century of Self are worth looking at.
can we answer uh, Andy's question here? Yes, yes, yeah. of course. Go ahead. Yeah, so deeper strategy insights. So first of all, Andy, you don't need to put the word strategy in front of words, okay? You don't need to do it. You don't need to put the word creative in front of words either. And if you do that, just do it really specifically because uh, otherwise, like, what are you saying? What are you saying? And eventually you're going to have a sentence that's like the strategic strategist creative strategy insights problem solving but that gets us paid more thing. money, doesn't it, Mark? Uh, maybe, maybe, <laughs> but it shouldn't, it shouldn't. So Andy, part of this is just, it's, it's really hard, you know. I do interviews, so I interview people, stakeholders, so people internal, people inside the company, and I interview people outside the company. You can also use academic research from Google Scholar, you could use consumer reviews, keyword research, but I'm looking for specific language and language that researchers refer to as monogamous, monogamous words. So monogamous being faithful, basically words that don't cheat. The example that I always give is the word pineapple. We know what a pineapple is. We don't know what the word empowerment means. We think we do, but we don't know what it means. It's a vague word like, ironically, the word concept. Okay, pineapple, we know. So I'm looking for those kinds of words and I'm looking for words that don't always belong together. An insight to me in the way that I use it is a form of idea. I'll start there. I'm gonna, I don't want to lose you. I can explain this very clearly, but there are going to be two or three connected ideas here. Okay. So to me, an insight is a form of idea. First ideas. Second from Edward de Bono ideas combine topics that don't usually belong together in novel and useful ways. Okay. Two important concepts. If you're not familiar with them, the third is then to say, what is to ask the question, what kind of an idea is an insight? An insight is an idea that gets you to reorganize your life. It's a high benchmark. Maybe you don't get to do that on every single brief, but in a sentence, I'm looking for an insight that brings two topics together because it's an idea, but in a way that could trigger me or someone else to think about the need to change how they live, how they think. It doesn't have to be super, 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 super profound, but there's a level of, profundity or profoundness involved. Now, with, even though I'm giving you kind of some big language here, two ways to kind of get a, a shock of insights. One is stand-up comedy. Go to YouTube, pick a stand-up comedian you like, watch five minutes of, what they, of, of a set and write down three insights in a sentence. You could use their language or you could use yours. Some comedians land an insight in their, in their bits or in their sets. Others, you have to work out what they're talking about. So there are different techniques, right? But you could study a bunch of comedians to write in a sentence what an insight is. An example I often use in my own, own classes is from George Carlin, a famous American comedian. And he's got this bit about how houses, topic one, are just a pile of stuff with a roof on it. Topic two, okay? Houses, are just a pile of stuff with a roof on it. A sentence like that is creating new meaning for me. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm guilty of that. Why do I have a house just to keep all my stuff? Okay. So it's getting me to see the world differently through two topics. If I then think, oh gosh, maybe I should have less stuff or not live in a house. It becomes more of an insight. Um, the second way to, to practice insights and then I'll stop talking. But the second way to practice insights is to think about something that you've learned about yourself or the world around you in the past two or three years that's led you to change how you live. 
and to write that down and to linger in it and to be honest with it and to kind of get yourself into an emotional space. That's what an insight is. An insight's not, I mean, you can have academic insights and you can have science oriented insights that don't feel poetic and rich and sad and full of emotion, but you can also have those things. So there you go. There's like a five minute lesson in insights. I hope you can use it. Uh, I, I will be using it. Absolutely. What, um, what other techniques can we use to, um, I was going to ask earlier about the, the kind of defining of the problem when you are digging deeper with the client and trying to, um, you know, with maybe the whys or, you know, something else where you're trying to get to that core of the issue. So I'm curious when, uh, when you get approached by, with a brief, a particular brief, at what point would you communicate what your, you know, let's say revised uh, brief is, as in to say, once you work out that uh, what actual challenge you're trying to solve, what actual challenge you you're, uh, would like to solve, uh, is that ba basically a conversation in that initial briefing? And then you kind of work that out together and then you deliver and you say, actually, we've worked out that we are going to solve X uh, at the end of it. Or is it like uh, some kind of a reverse brief uh, situation where you go away and you think about the problem and you, um, you know, uh, research and you brainstorm and ideate and so on. And then you deliver what you think the, the challenge uh, that should be solved is to, to be able to get approval, I suppose, from the client to be able yeah, to move it, forward. It, it depends. I mean, it depends on your relationship and history with the client. It depends on their ability to share their own research with you. Some big companies, they can't share a lot of stuff with you because it's super competitive and you've got to go do your own research, uh, hopefully that they pay for. Um, and it depends on the level of honesty in that relationship so that, yeah, you might get a brief, but if you've known the client for a long time and you've talked about the brief that's coming, you might already have some thoughts in mind or if you've been involved with doing the research or watching the research or seeing the research presented back, you might have a sense of it. But in most cases, I'm going away and doing research and then coming back, and especially in a pitch situation, I'll usually, uh, my first slide would often be like a reframe problem, which can really scare your account team. If, you have, if you're working with other pe people in an agency, they can be really scared of that. But I'll, I'll go in with like a word or three words or some kind of weird theater uh, just so that I'm getting people to think about the problem because if we don't agree on what the problem is and if they're not interested in that, everything else doesn't matter. How are they going to choose us? And that's kind of what the research on selling talks about, that the top salespeople tend to be people who go in and sell, sell a problem. And they're like, yeah, we can respond to your brief to build a factory. Okay, let's forget design and advertising. We can respond to your brief to build a factory but we've done research and here's the problem we think you actually need to solve possibly with this factory or with this assume it's with this factory and the salespeople who do that, they shift the conversation. Uh, and then it's funny, I was talking to a strategist in the UK called Phil Adams and he added to this. He's like, think about it from a game theory point of view, like from odds, from an odds point of view, statistics mm -hmm. or odds, right? Let's say there are, let's say there are four companies that you're pitching, pitching against, you're one. Four companies that are pitching and you're one. Um, if they all go back in and take the brief at face value and they go, here's your new logo or here's how we would do your new logo or here's how you add, you could say that they have like a one in three chance or a one in four chance. If, you, if they all do that, 
if you go in and go, we can do that, but here's the problem, then you are potentially competing one against the best of the other three. So potentially you could argue you've got a one in two chance, right? So talking problems, if you're in a competitive pitch situation might increase your odds. And I think it's more than might based on the research out of Harvard that was published in the Harvard Business Review entitled The End of Solution Selling. I could go on about this for a long time, but like the, to me, this is like super practical and it's the, heart of, it's the heart of what we do. And there can be days where I'm like, if you don't do this, what are you doing? Because this is, you know, this is, I just feel that this is just so embedded in the work that we're supposed to be doing that it confuses me when I see people not doing it. It's, I think there's too many briefs that are definitely taken at face value and yeah, I, I guess there's, there's a lot of different factors, isn't there, to, that drives it. Like you say, there's a, account teams, they get scared, they're afraid to, to um, maybe alienate the, the customer, the client, or um, ruffle the feathers or, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. And, but at the same time, if in, in that scenario that you just presented, if four of those went in with their redefining the challenge, the client has lots of great ideas, basically, if, if they've got four different alternative ways to look at the problem. Um, yep. Not to say that there will be a great way to look at, the, you know, to look at the problem, but they still have multiple perspectives and then they can start thinking about their own solutions too. Um, so hopefully the, there are a lot of creative agencies that do uh, approach uh, briefs in that scenario, with that scenario. Um, but I definitely know that uh, plenty of kind of solo designers or uh, designers who are starting out, they, maybe they don't feel like they're in the position that they can challenge those assumptions. It's totally true. And so it's, uh, I, I'm always trying to work out how, how can we empower those kind of people to, um, to be able to uh, have some confidence to be able to, to have those conversations. Can I, I, I really do feel like, because I've, I've been thinking about the word confidence a lot. It, it comes up a lot. I think the first, the first step in confidence is knowing your own philosophy. So know your own philosophy. You need to think. For me, I need to write. Other people might need to paint or do something else. But if you don't have your own philosophy of why you are doing what you're doing, you don't have structure. Right? You need a structure to stand on, even if it shifts. Uh, and there's, there's a guy that I know who is an awesome designer. I worked with him in New York, Alvin. I don't know if he's here, but I was talking, talking to him the other day about this very problem. And he works with big companies like IBM, right? And all someone like he needs he's, is for, some, for him to talk and for someone to listen. He's really into um, type, like moving typography. And he's just talking. We're just having a casual chat. And if he's here, I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. And he's like, man, like he's worked with Google, IBM, all these companies. And he goes, I just go into places and go, why isn't it moving? Why isn't it moving? And I'm like, dude, I love that. Why isn't it moving? Like, that's your philosophy. Why isn't it moving? That could be, a, you know. That's just tagline. Yeah. yeah, basically tagline, big bold letters on website. And just from that one sentence, you can talk about your philosophy, your principles. So we've got two Ps. And I'll do the third P, process. Okay, because then we're like, okay, what else are you trying to solve for yourself in if you were to set up your own company, which is not what we were really talking about. But it could be like in New York, sometimes it takes ages for any of your work to appear in public. Oh, great, because you've got this word moving in your philosophy. So maybe what you say is not only 
like it's, it's 2021. Not only should your logos and, and brand systems, brand identity systems be moving, step one, but we're going to develop them in a way that gets you moving. What does that mean? We're going to have stuff in public in two weeks and then in four weeks and then in eight weeks and we're just going to keep going. And so you've got this philosophy connecting to the process through principles that you then package. I don't know why I'm being so alliterative with the piece today, that you can package and price. Oh my God, five. Um, and there you go. But without that, you're just another designer selling some stuff. You know, do, you, do you like this dress I'm wearing right now? Do you like my jeans? Who likes my socks? That's basically what you're doing. Right? Without that, you like my without, jacket? Exactly, I do. But without that philosophical structure, you've got nothing to sell. You've just, you've just got a wish that someone somewhere will see your brilliance and hopefully like you and they'll be okay with how you price yourself. Hmm. Yeah, we definitely need um, to show our thinking a lot more as, as designers. Um, I think brand strategists, they have that uh, worked out uh, because they, I guess they, they predominantly deal with thinking and, but designers predominantly think, deal with design and then they think that's their kind of uh, area of expertise and therefore Maybe sometimes some people, I guess, maybe even think that maybe it's not the place to um, to suggest any kind of anything maybe. outside of designs, you know. Maybe, have... but, but you can be gentle with that, right? You can, you can be gentle. You can pose questions and be curious, you know. So my friend, for example, if he was being an employee in an employee situation, he could say, "Yeah, I can design this thing for you, but what if it moved?" You know. But if he doesn't know his own philosophy or his own structure, how can he pull a conversation back to it? You know, I know that with my personal philosophy on strategy, it's about solving problems. So if someone doesn't want to do that, then we're not a mix. You know, unless you want me to like write an ad for you or write something on the website, we're not possibly a mix. But you have to have that philosophy to come back to. And I think that is something that scares people. And the word philosophy can seem intimidating, but it's not. You can, it can be just real talk. And well, that's the same kind of thing applies to, let's say, creativity because um, uh, that's a, you know another thing that I'm pretty passionate about, and it's something that I know uh, works a lot better and is a lot more predictable when you have a process, when you have your structured um, process of how you generate ideas, essentially. And, and again, like you say, it doesn't have to be a static thing; it can be kind of evolving, and it can you know you can add new things into the process, or you can take some things away. You can make things longer, shorter, but if you have that solid structure in, in the process and you know what that is, then you actually do become more confident and comfortable talking about that with your clients. And when they ask you about timeframes, when they ask you yeah. about um, how will this work or what, what, what would that look like, then you can straight away tell them because you already have the process in, in the back of your mind. Yes. But if you kind of go from like a, I don't know what analogy to use, but like a drunk be or something going from flower to flower you know you're drunk of pollen or something I, I don't know i'm just making up now gen fly but you're jumping from flower to flower but you're not actually you know uh creating any process around your work um you're gonna be just looking searching around forever like not finding the yeah. the right way to go about things yeah and that's also to suggest that there are different types of process right where there's like a factory repeatable process. And then what we're probably talking about is more an approach. Hmm. I use the word process in that situation too, but I'm not meaning like you do the exact same 50 things to get to the same result. That's hmm. not what we're talking about. But um, 
yeah i think that makes that makes complete sense for sure so do you have any kind of maybe um i'm very careful with you because i know you you pick on words so i'm just trying to <laughs> what do you say of the word ritual let's can we use the word ritual what kind of ritual can, can you i don't <laughs> pick on i don't pick on words i look for good words i look for words that are chunky i don't pick on words and the my main preaching message is if you're working with other people part of working with other people is to help each other understand the words you're using that's it you know like it's not that a word has to be defined in one way it can be defined however you want to define it even though a lot of conservative people would hate what i just said because that's like postmodernism and you know there's all that culture war going on right now the point is that your team needs to understand how you're using it you know so we already talked about how the word problem there's at least three categories of problem that are pretty common in the work we do so the word ritual what's the question there it's a good word it's a good word so we we're, we're talking about uh, kind of the creative process or, or ways for you to be able to make something more uh, predictable so in the context of let's say creativity or problem solving um you know approaching a creative brief uh, whatever it might be um within that field what kind of rituals habits um tools or techniques uh or parts of the process would you recommend that if there was like one thing that people had to integrate into their tool belt what would that be i mean I, maybe there's a way to answer this question and a question that came up about how else do you kind of connect with insights i'd encourage people to surround themselves with good words so that ritual could be to have a handful of interesting books it doesn't just have to be a book and it could be fiction or non-fiction but to use them in your to use reading them in your work and simon king talks about this in a book called uh on writing where and a lot of authors have this habit in life or ritual where they might write for 3 to 4 hours a day and then read for 2 to 4 hours and they kind of just trying to cleanse out their palate or try on new words or see what sticks in their heads especially when they sleep so i think making sure that you've got interesting language around you is is a useful ritual and if you're feeling stuck pick up your favorite book and read read a page of it and maybe read that page 5 times or read 5 pages and that's part of your work the other ritual is lot like long walks and things that turn on the parasympathetic nervous system and allow the subconscious to tie sorry for my big words uh, and allow the subconscious to tie things together so sleep yoga exercise long walks super important um i often do laps in central park it takes i just walking cuz i messed my knee up when i was young so i can't run too much but the a lap will take 2 and a half to 3 hours and every time i do it if i'm working on something I'm like I feel guilty I should be in an office I should be behind my laptop but the brain does its thing you know mm. it, it long walks turn the brain on it they get it gets it out of like fight and fight or flight mode and allows the brain to process things differently you're in nature hopefully and nearly always ideas and words land for me so that that two rituals to cheat the question they um almost identical to mine i don't know if this is for yours or if they're just suggestions but this is almost exactly what i do i i talked about the the latter um in a clubhouse room chat um clubhouse room chat yeah um about burning out and then 
that was one of the things that I talked about is going for a walk. It was basically a ritual of mine or a habit of mine where every lunchtime um, when I worked at the agency, I would go for a um, 45 minute walk around the block. Um, and even no matter how busy we were. So this was kind of just a, a non-negotiable for me because I knew exactly that if I don't kind of have that time to cleanse or to kind of reset, basically I wouldn't be the, the best person to, to perform at the, you know, at the task at hand, at the, being creative or trying to generate ideas. So even when I had sour faces or, you know, people looking at me funny going, we're so busy. Why are you going for, for this 45 minute walk? I'd be like, I can always stay back, you know, but I can't force myself through something that I don't have at the moment. Like I need that, um, I need that habit basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Like I have phases of doing that, especially when it's warm or phases of yoga, which I've not been at doing for a while. And if you've done yoga and you do thinking work, so often you're lying in like Shavasana at the end of it and you're like, oh my God, I, I, know, the, I know the name of the next book I want to write. Or like something like that will happen. Uh, I don't know the, the, the names of the poses of yoga. So. Yeah, Shavasana is just, you're basically lying. At, you're lying on the ground basically at the very end. Yeah. But uh, walking's healthy for sure. I'll, uh, I'll try and uh, do yoga. My wife's been suggesting that I try yoga. Um, I, I was more like the iron, um, push, pushing iron type of person, but I haven't gone to the gym for the last six months. Just I'm in a new environment and I'm not, I don't know, I'm not motivated to, to exercise. Maybe I, uh, I should you. take up yoga. So how, how is the, the walking and the running in, in uh, Central Park? Are there uh, people wearing masks? So how does that work? Because I, it's... They have been. I've only done one lap this year. I did 100 days in a row last year, which was really good. You know, it's about... Uh, sometimes I've done like 10 to 20 kilometers of walking in a, in a day. Um, New York's pretty, like I can see people outside. It's pretty obedient with the masks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, in, Man in Manhattan. Yeah. It's, it's at the moment here. Well, it, the part of Russia where I am there is, it's a very small city and, and it's like 10,000, 15,000 people. So we, there's no, I don't think there's been a COVID test um, results really? um, positive in like six months or something. I could be wrong, <laughs> but it's pretty small, even if the numbers are that, that tiny. So everyone's pretty relaxed and it's good to be able to be in nature. I think and if you can get out and uh, walk, it's yeah, perfect for uh, resetting your batteries. Mm -hmm. I want to give people a shout out um, uh, to your profile. Um, Mark Pollard is your Instagram handle. Obviously, they can find you. But um, what are some other ways where they can find about your work? Um, can they join your course? Can they? I know you have a course out, which I probably want to join when I come back from from Istanbul. Actually, I see that you have um uh, like a I don't know what do you call it? Is it like a? It's not a challenge. It's more of a. It's it's a yeah it's a bunch of class. it's a hundred classes so you can go to sweathead.com and find that it's really cheap it might not always be cheaper there's a hundred hundred strategy classes there and my book um, I just got an email from my printer saying they're going to ship my book so I'm going to have books in a week and I didn't think that was going to happen for another month and a half so that's good news I got a book it's called strategies strategies your words podcast called Sweathead classes called Sweathead Facebook group called Sweathead with about sixteen thousand people in it and. Um, yeah, stay, stay pretty active and uh, getting some plans together for what comes next. But I'm around. I'm around. So just before you go, can you give us a, a um, 
quick background story of Sweathead. What's what's the the reason behind the name? The name. The it's very straightforward. It's because what I'm trying to do in life is help people who think for a living to live. It's something that I'm still trying to work out and that I'm doing okay at. I'm doing okay at right now. And the thing is when we, so there's that thinking for a living, trying to help people who think for a living to live. And also a lot of what I do is to try to help people practice strategy, practice thinking. So if you think for a living and you practice what's in your head, your brain might sweat, your head might sweat, and Sweathead. That's really where the name comes from. Uh, I like a symbolic name. I don't think symbolic names um, lead to inevitable success. And I don't think that boring names lead to failure. There are plenty of companies who are very successful with uninteresting names. I just, I like a symbolic name. You know, my hip hop magazine was called Stealth. It was all about underground, under the radar people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the consulting work I do is through Mighty Jungle. It's about um, trying, you know, how wild is it? It's just wild out there, et cetera, et cetera. And people get stuck in their head, blah, blah, blah. So I like a symbolic name, you know, it's kind of poetry. Might as well do some poetry. Yeah. Maybe do some haikus um, while you add it as well. Haikus, that's a competitive sport in Japan, or at least it was back in the day. Yeah. Haikus are scary. Yeah. I saw James May um, when he went to Japan, the the TV presenter, he was trying, yeah. he was, he was, that was his challenges to come up with a haiku. For every episode <laughs> it's pretty uh embarrassing to be honest but not Poor that James i can write man. haikus but <laughs> so this has can. been uh super fascinating mark and i'm um, thrilled that you could join me and i want to thank you for your time and i'm sure that uh, i can see there's been a lot of comments um I, i've actually been pretty slack today with the comments so thanks for helping me out mark with that um i i can see that there's uh, plenty of people that got tremendous value out of this chat so that's good see um thanks for joining everyone in the audience as well and um i guess we'll wrap up and uh say goodbyes no worries man thank you for having me and enjoy istanbul and uh may you all do happy thinking and happy designing if you're designers thanks again bye hey so great to see that you've made it till the end of the episode and thank you so much for listening to the studio podcast i hope you have enjoyed today's guest This is a series of live conversations that I host on a weekly basis on my Instagram account, We Are Studio. Uh, I invite a range of creative leaders and other interesting speakers to talk about the range of topics such as creativity, mindset, branding, and leadership skills. So if you'd like to catch the next conversation live, be sure to find me and follow me on Instagram. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as it would really mean the world to me to hear your feedback. Uh, And also, it will actually help me tremendously to get the podcast heard by more ambitious creatives like yourself. Now remember, the world needs your creativity and you have the power to ignite it. I'll catch you on the next episode.